Hello, I'm Jensen Wheeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Your answer to motorcycles, the universe, and everything. 42. 42. Okay. Is that the question? Is, would you, so do, the, it, do you have to be like... That's the answer. No, no, no. You got to be like... 42? 40, 42? 42? There's some that that's call me... Tim? <laughs> Tim? I saw a thing that... It was a play on the English language recently. It was just a series of internet things where people were talking about how ludicrous the English language is. And there were there was one set of sentences where it was Will Smith, Will Smith, Will Smith, Will Smith, Will, Will, Will Smith, Smith, right? And it was a series of Will Smith and Will Smith. So two Wills and two Smiths, and you could create four or five sentences that made sense if you just use those four words i thought it was really bizarre like it made your mind just go Meh, like because it was like will will smith smith <laughs> just which emphasis you're putting on it right that's where punctuation becomes really important yeah sure and that that is something that i feel is lost in the podcasting medium yeah sure will you help your uncle jack off a horse <laughs> exactly right exactly your uncle jack comma off a horse <laughs> that's not the same as minors <laughs> it's a minor or a minor <laughs> that joke really just doesn't stop getting old <laughs> at least for us <laughs> not at all i bet there's like just be like really you're gonna make the minor joke again yeah, huh and we get it great. yeah it's a guy he digs in the earth with his hands yeah he's probably seen some shit yeah keep you only got like three jokes guys keep, keep, keep stick to motorcycles uh, Quentin, before we before we get too far down that rabbit hole, we should apologize to our listeners because we definitely had some issues getting the last episode out. We, well, we didn't have any issues. The proverbial we? You and I got it out on time, yeah. as usual, making the commitment to get this podcast out on yep. a weekly basis on the start and of the week. And it was out, and there were certain people that could listen to it, right? The, the downside is we're having a little kerfuffle with uh, SoundCloud who hosts the the show the, on the the technical side and i truly don't understand the the whole issue although i kind of do but i, I really don't I, I don't know why it's it's become such a thing i don't know why some listeners well no listeners i should back this up so soundcloud hosts hosts the show it goes out to an rss feed the rss feed powers itunes overcast any app that you're using to listen to the show uh, is dependent on this RSS feed. What does RSS stand for? Uh, real-time syndication something stream. Okay. Real. Yeah. It gives, it something gives, like that. Gives us an idea of what that means. Because I, I, I know that's a big deal for... I either just gained like mad nerd cred for knowing that off the top of my head or lost a significant amount for fucking it up. Yeah. yeah either way... Either way, I'm we'll kind of okay. strangely comfortable with that. Sure. Um, anyways, that RSS feed powers everything except every pretty much everyone that that listens to the show is probably listening to it through something that's dependent on that feed that feeds totally borked right now so i don't know what the deal is with it we're working on soundcloud to get it figured out i'm sure this show coming out is going to be a little bork too so you're probably bork yeah bork wow that's the first for me never heard bork yeah isn't that the chef in the sesame street yeah probably i don't know if they're related okay all right I mean, just it just sounds like it sounds it sounds like what it is. Like, oh man, I really borked that up. No, no, it, it's good. It's a better way to to say fuck, right? Instead of you saying, well, I, I feel like we curse a lot on the show. I know, 
I'm trying that, to come up with like. That's why I just did that because it was it was I funny. You, the you're, irony. You're like, mm, we drop an f bomb while you casually try to get around cursing, <laughs> dick nuts. I'm per, I'm partial to Beaker myself. Yeah, Beaker's pretty good. All right. <sighs> Anywho, um, so yeah, apologies for for the technical issues. We should have that sorted out shortly. Fingers crossed. The best part is I love that we we pay extra to have like priority support with SoundCloud, and it honestly God takes them three days to respond. It's not working. You're right. and it is like I would I don't know where they're based. It'd probably be easier if I just drove there. I think they're in like Finland or something. All right. Well, I don't know. You're gonna have to finish this, that up. This might be why they're having like monetary problems, and like there's been rumors of them going out of business. I'm like, sure. oh, you're having a really hard time taking other people's money. Anywho, uh, the other item of business I want to get done before we go down the deep dark path that is episode 35. We are doing a live show here in Portland at Motocorsa. We're thinking the last week of October. We still haven't nailed down a date because I forgot that Halloween is like a thing. And it's a big thing here, right? <laughs> it's a big thing in Portland. And so I was thinking like, oh, we'll do it on a Friday. And then we realized like that's like two days before Halloween proper. And people will probably have um, parties and things to go to. I don't because I have no friends. But that's okay. So we're kind of shooting for like the 26th-ish, which is a Wednesday. But that's like super tentative and i probably already changed my mind on it but that last week probably somewhere in the middle of the week seven o'clock hosted by uh or not our, seven o'clock our wonderful friends at motocorsa yeah i don't know we we probably it'll have to be like seven thirty. really okay yeah well, that, i didn't know if like we do it like right at closing or oh uh, sure what. we'll have to sort that out we'll but keep, an, out. keep an eye out on the uh it will definitely be on facebook instagram twitter we'll, we'll announce it in the next show we'll have it i'm, I'm gonna nail it down tomorrow okay um, so we'll have it in the next show for sure. So we'll get a couple shows to tease it out. Yep. But we'd love to see you all there, all three of you, and um, the masses. We'll probably, we call them the masses. We'll probably get drinks afterwards. It'll be fun. Right. But no drinking and writing. No. That's a no. Nope. Responsible podcast listeners only. Yep. I mean, I can drink if you're, and if podcast. You're not, if you're not a responsible podcast listener, get an Uber. Yeah. That's U- Uber it up. Uber it up or a Lyft if you like to sit in the front seat. Is that how that works? That's the thing. That, that's that's like Uber's like more like taxi and Lyft is like, hey, we're friends. Because uh, we spelled Lyft with a Y, so you know we're hip. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I did a lot of I did a lot of Ubering recently. So this is that this is my segue into the show. Yeah. I did a lot of Ubering recently because I was down in LA for the um A Rye Helmet. A Rye Helmet Personals. Thank you. I forgot while I was down there because it it's been a <laughs> it's been a crazy week. Uh so Arai's uh, launching the Quantum X and Signet X helmets. And then I, of course, can't go to SoCal without doing a bunch of meetings. So um, uh, Aprilia or Piaggio, I should say, not just Aprilia. But we love our, we love our friends at Aprilia. They don't, they don't always have their shit together, but we love them anyways. <laughs> but our friends at Piaggio hooked me up with a uh, MP3 500. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Did, yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. The two-wheel front, yeah. one-wheel rear. Two in the front, one, one in, in the, the rear. In the rear. It's the shocker of motorcycles. It's that's sho- right. No, it's the shocker of scooters. scooters. Okay. Yeah, it is a scooter. Yeah, it is It is a scooter. It is a, a scooter. It's a step-through scooter. A scooter. Okay. Ooh, yeah. And it's uh, that thing was a lot of fun. Not in like like in a fun way, but it was a lot of fun because it's just <laughs> did you, did you, no not, not a minor in a fun way? not a minor but yeah, a minor sure um, <laughs> it always gets me it always just gets me <laughs> it's just so silly um, 
No, it's an interesting. I, I've been wanting to ride the, one of those for a while, just because it's intriguing, and it's actually when you think about like making a leaning front wheel system is kind of hard to do. Yeah, it's and this is like complex. you kind of like Piaggio's kind of a little, a little turd about it sometimes because they they have a propensity to go after companies that that are doing this. So like I think they're actually suing Yamaha right now, and I think they've gone after a couple brands for using that same kind of front end and i don't know what the patent looks like but they must feel like they've got a, a beast of a patent to be able to go after some of these designs that i don't think are quite as similar as uh, as they think they are but that's fine you know that's that's business um they'll sort it out but it's it's interesting because it's i've always wanted to see how it worked and see how it rides and i have to say like for as poopy as people get about it one because it's a scooter and two, because it has too many wheels. It rides just like three a, many wheels. That's what that'd be the advertising. It's three, got three many wheels. Three many wheels. And like <laughs> you can kind of see like Piaggio, like that would be the marketing uh-huh. ploy. Just like, oh, I don't know how many wheels this is. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, let's race an AMA with it. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, but it was good. It's it it was it needs more power. Yeah. Because I mean it's it's a five hundred cc scooter. I don't know what it makes power wise, but it's like 25 35 yeah, 40 sure. not a lot and it needs better front brakes it needs better brakes in general but front brakes for sure huh uh, well, that's that seems ironic that it seems weird but you got to think about like i don't know the wheel sizes they're small they're like 14s or something like that huh. they're tiny so it's got tiny little discs it's scooter rubber so it's not like great rubber but there's definitely more braking force in the rear than it is up in the front and you're like huh it kind of makes sense when it's like a normal scooter because you got like the engines basically your swing arm and that's a lot of weight. So it would hook up. Yeah. But like with the front, you're like, why isn't it? There's twice as much braking force. Yeah. There's twice as much rubber. Maybe they engineered the, it so that you can't stop easy because you do have a lot of potential. No, I mean, it's like friction. Da- it's like dangerous how little braking oh. force there is. Like that's the thing because it'll go up to 90 indicated, which I might add is like 140 kph because the big numbers on the speedometer dial are kilometers per hour. Yeah. The tiny numbers that are the same color as the background, it's yeah. like gray on gray. Yeah, those are the miles per hour. That's really fun to read at night. <clears throat> but yeah, it tops out at like 90. And like there was a few turns, and I'll get into this later. There's a few turns where I ran out of road to break, and I was just lucky that there was like a runoff huh. curb kind of thing because there's just nothing there. I like mean, it felt wooden. Or like the brake feel is really bad, and but I mean like as as strong as I can grip, you know, and I got a pretty good grip from from rock climbing and other things. Other uh, things. <laughs> I was just gonna <laughs> slip that in there. <laughs> I got a pretty good. Not as good of a not as good of a grip as a miner. Yeah, the miners have way better grips because using all those tools to dig into the earth. Dig into the earth. <laughs> Digging with their hands. <laughs> Yeah, not as good of a grip as a miner. I got a pretty good. I got. I feel like I got a pretty good, pretty good grip on things. And I'm just, I'm just pulling as hard as I can, and nothing's coming out. Um. Oh wait, we're talking about the scooter. Um. Yeah, no, no, like a fistful of brake, and just nothing's, nothing's slowing me down. It's a little, little scary. Um. But you got acclimated to it after a while, I'm sure. And then reduced yeah. your speed and your distance, brake distance. And yeah. Shit. But you shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it would be one of those things like I really, I really like the concept of like, I would love, I'd love to take one and put like, put like 17s on it and see what it can do. Put some, put some real rubber on it, put like 320 discs on each side, 
lighten the crap out of it, give it some more power, and be like, that would be bitchin'. That would wonder. be a bitchin' ride. All right. But I, I totally get like it is it is designed. I mean, this is really a bike designed for the European market. It would be a bitchin' way to get around town in downtown Milan, downtown Florence, downtown Rome. Like that makes perfect sense. It is a perfect city bike where you're not gonna be going 90, you're gonna be doing zero to thirty-five. It's got the CVT on it. Uh, the CVT does not like to stay above 90 for like 15 minutes on end. Yeah, does it melt down or something? I I may have cooked it a little bit. I don't. I haven't heard anything from from Shane about it, but I'm sure they're gonna dig into that and be like, uh, so CVT love. is a constantly variable transmission. It is a, a a series. Well, not a series. It's two conical things. I think they're called sheaves and a belt, and the sheaves kind of. Cones within cones uh, move in with each other and create different diameters and a series of springs and or spring-loaded things and weights allow it to change ratio as you're going like in a constant instead of a a fixed gear and a fixed gear, right? I'm really glad you jumped on that description because I was like, no way. Yeah, no way, it's a really no way strange thing. over a podcast am I describing a CVT. <laughs> it's yeah. just, I yeah. barely understand it in its own right. Like, yeah, like sure. the very, like I understand the theory, but how to achieve the the ability to constantly yeah. change the the diameters of your of your. You just got to think of two cones going into each other, and as the cones intersect, the the belt will then. Uh, uh, go up on the the deeper or larger circumference of the cone as it's going. And I don't, I, I'd have to sit there and look at it myself to understand how it works relative to engine RPM and um, wheel speed. Cause it is a weird thing. Yeah. And, but mo- there's so many vehicles that are like this. Oh yeah. All it's uh, clever shit though. It's sure. proper clever shit. I remember when that came out. We like that's that's some clever shit. Yeah, but most scooters are that way. Like scooters have been this way for a really long time. It's just when you anytime you get on a vehicle that you pin it and it revs all the way to max rev and stays there and just kind of goes forward. Well, that's the thing. It doesn't rev all the way up to the max. It, it hits like five thousand, six thousand RPM and then just stays there. Yeah, that's what I mean. Whatever it peak, goes to must a higher peak, RPM. Must be peak torque is what they're at. Right. It goes to peak torque and then moves you forward from there. I, I I'm sorry, I didn't explain that very well but you know a lot of um nissan cars from the early 2000s on like a nissan murano, murano yeah a lot of the uh that was, i think one of the first ones to have yeah, it. and they're pieces of shit they were known to just frag themselves uh, that i know of i had a friend that had one that was a bad deal uh maximas i remember first time i got into a maxima I don't know. Was, that's a fairly big rental car. And somehow, some way, I ended up getting upgraded to a bigger car. And I was in Salt Lake City. And I get on the freeway and I'm like, something's wrong with this car. It's staying in one gear. What the fuck's going on? But I kept on accelerating. I'm like, oh, this thing has a CVT. And it's just odd. It works, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't, I, I don't like the disconnect it gives I me. think it's great in a scooter application. Because sure, you're already course. kind of disconnected. You're already doing like the automatic clutch thing. Yeah. Um, it was cool to have the, the rear brake on the left hand. That really helped. Like when you're getting into a turn, you want to trail the the rear. Oh, on your literally not left hand side, but on your your left hand. My left my left hand okay. control. I like that. I think and like going back to when we were talking about electrics. If I got an electric bike, totally putting the rear brake on the left hand. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's totally the way to go. Um. Anyways, uh, fun bike to ride around Los Angeles and Orange County. Um, the wrong bike to ride up Highway 33 into Ojai and uh, Paso Robles and uh, yeah, those areas because it's Wasn't just too fun. It was fun, but it's one of those things like you get in the open and it was fun to it was fun to 
to show some wheels to some guys in the turns, especially on 33, which is a road I know really well, so sure. I can go pretty quick there. Um, and it's not like a lot of heavy braking. It's mostly flowing, which really played to my advantage, having basically no brakes. <laughs> um, but like we got into some open sections, and I'm just pinning it at 90, and I'm just watching guys just do a buck. I mean, they were doing the speed limit. Yeah, All yeah. of us were doing the speed limit. Yeah. Um, but if they weren't, they were doing like a buck 80 or whatever just flying i was like all right later and i didn't really know where to go so that was kind of a problem too um you figured it out though didn't you? we got there eventually it's all it's all good it's a good thing you had a had the the wonderful confines of an awry helmet to help yeah. you through weather those bad times that's a good that's a good plug that's well done yep expert expert transition sir We'll I didn't be. want that plug to go awry. You know what I'm saying? I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, you have a quantum of solace for that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a signet ring? No, I don't. But I'll vector to something else. In a oh, minute. I don't want you to be defiant about it. <laughs> Damn. Blah, 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 blah. Corsair. <laughs> no, that would be, if, if the helmet wasn't aerodynamic, it would have Corsair behind it, right? Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> Wow. So I did it. Yeah, you got it in there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Silly son of a bitch. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but awry, you always think if something's going to go awry, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I bet uh, Aki awry, the, um, the son of the current CEO, was there, and I don't think he'd find that joke funny. Although he's a super cool dude. I think he would. I think he'd be all right with it. I don't. I think it'd get lost in translation. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But if you could say, "Hey, there's this," I wonder if there's Japanese puns. There's got to be. I encountered. But I, don't, I wonder if puns in in J- Japanese culture are as big of a thing as they are here. Right. You always wonder in different. I know in Italian, they they do have them, and they do find them amusing. The couple times that I have encountered it, that was okay. I feel like the Japanese are more civilized. I feel like they <laughs> come here and they're like these fucking these people. people. We ruled the world for like. 5,000 years before these assholes showed up. And now, like... Look at them. They're so, and, and they're not disciplined at all. Yeah. Anywho. Um, yeah, so the Quantum X, Signet X are the helmets we were testing. Yep. Uh, rode up with the Quantum, rode back with the Signet. So got a lot of seat time in both of them, which was interesting. Like, my first helmet was an Arai Quantum. So that's why I was actually kind of like stoked about this launch is like kind of full circle for me as a writer but also like just i feel like it's a product i know pretty well or at least how it's been in the past and both helmets basically to, to boil it down to a nutshell they're both getting the same treatment that the corsair x got last year well and you're gonna before you go too far explain where these helmets are in the continuum of Mirai helmets like your the corsair x is the top of the line triple throwdown racers helmet the right. one that's the lightest and or most protective and or best in whatever way uh, it is their top of the line helmet it's what you're going to see all the Arai sponsored riders wearing so cal crutchlow danny pedrosa josh hayes uh but Scott nikki russell hayden. nikki hayden thank you um a lot, lot of, of the flat trackers and water riders it's a it's a yeah that's the helmet that is the top of the line so so that's that and then these are it's actually funny because i think um he goes by the name mitch i don't know what his japanese is the, the current ceo huh. mitch Arai. um he describes the quantum as the signet as turing helmets and we hmm. had to be told when he says turing he just means not racing 
Yeah. Uh, not just like, oh, we're going to get in our Goldwing Go Tour. He okay. means not on the racetrack. Okay. So then what makes that helmet different? Or so, why? so they have a different, um, I'm going to forget the name of the material that's used in the Corsair. It's like xylophane or something like that. Xylon. It's a, it's a high-end, uh, lightweight composite material that's not in these. They have different vents. Um, their price point's considerably lower. They use the same system with the pads, which is good. So you can actually put the Corsair pads inside, I believe, the Quantum huh, and, yeah. and to change the shape. Um, it changes the shape to maybe suit a different type of element. The vents are different. Yeah. And then even between the the Quantum and the Signet, there's different ventings. And that's where you should get to the important distinction. So the Quantum is an intermediate oval in, in, in shell shape, which relates to how your facial bone and muscle and fat structure on your face is. So if you've got jowls, what do you think? Well, that was like the funny thing. So, so I'll get to that because that's, that's kind of a thing. And then the signet is the long oval, which is more, let's say, of a European shape. So it's like this idea of like there is actually different head shapes and, and it comes kind of down to um, continental differences. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Like there's like we're Americans Not- are very european-ish because we were calling us europeans but there's like a european end there's definitely like an asian head sure and i was talking to another helmet manufacturer and they're like yeah we we might have the same helmet branded as helmet a but if you look at the skews we have like five different skews for different markets because we know that it's going to fit a little bit have to fit a little bit different in say china and japan than yeah. it is in germany and italy yeah and even then there's like some variation so it's an interesting thing that you don't really think about too much and um, some brands, they tackle it by having interchangeable cheek pads, uh, brands like Arai are tackling this problem by having different, uh, product lines or, or different products in the line that cater to these things. So the signet is the long oval. The quantum is the intermediate oval. I, I, my first helmet was a quantum. So I was immediately like, Oh, I must be an intermediate oval head. That's the one for me. And, uh, it was actually, I think good on the ride that we wore both. Cause I actually found the signet to be more comfortable. Just in terms of, I think, um, not so much like how my my skull is shaped, but just how my cheeks are, like where the bulges are, like where my cheekbones are versus like where my 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 temples are and things like that, um, which is like a weird thing. But it also, it's not so easy because like, um, and this was the point of that story, it was just saying like, it's not just like, oh, I have bigger cheeks or not. It's, it's very much like where in your cheek and where on your face you, you're holding the weight. Um, and it, it just goes back to show you like how important like proper fitting is. Like I remember when the internet first started, Arai was one of like the few manufacturers or few OEMs or helmet manufacturers that was really resistant to selling things online. You could not buy an Arai online yeah, like sure. to circa 2003 through, through 2005 or whatever. It was very much, um, you had to be a brick and mortar store in order to carry Arai helmets. Yeah. And they eventually they eventually have come around. But there is one of the things where I'll say, like, you know, as bad of an idea that was, I do kind of get that the there's a lot of value in trying it on. I don't think I ever would have probably worn a Signet helmet if I hadn't tried on both those helmets and rode with them for a day. And they and, have <clears throat> similar vent systems? They're similar. They are different. They're better or worse than each other or just different? Uh, I think just different. I really enjoyed, I actually really like the way the Signet vents. The Quantum uses vents that are more similar to the Corsair. Uh, just so it might be a little operation. louder. 
Because the Corsair, that was one of the things about it. It's loud because you know the what? vents are freaking effective. Truthfully, all those helmets are loud. Yeah. yeah. Here, here's the thing. If it's got side plates, it's loud. And this, is, and this is why I wanted to like get into this conversation is maybe talk about some ideas with helmets. Noise and airflow are directly correlated to each other. Of course, sure. They're inversely correlated, I should say. Yeah. If you want more air coming through your helmet, it's going to be noisier. That's just how that works. Because yep. the noise that you hear is wind. Huh. What do you know? What do you know? And so it was actually really interesting because I've been riding around town with the Signet. The hard thing with, with testing those helmets on the scooter was I had this huge windshield. And so I've been around town riding with my my Hyper, which is you know, no wind protection. So I get a, I get the more direct effect. And it's been really interesting to see with the Signet, at least, when you close the vents, one, how much airflow you, you don't feel, yep. but two, how much more wind noise you don't hear. Mm-hmm. So... It's pretty impressive, um, actually, the, the difference between the vents open and the vents closed, both in terms of airflow, but also in, in wind noise. I'm of the opinion you should be wearing earplugs with any motorcycle yep. helmet. You There is no motorcycle helmet on the market that is going to prevent you from losing your hearing from wind noise and engine noise and traffic noise uh, while you're at a motorcycle at speed. Yep. There's just, there's no helmet on this market that's that quiet. I, I always, my for my break point, it's 30 miles. If I'm going... Less than 30 miles, maybe I won't wear earplugs, but I'll wear earplugs going 15 miles, right? Even if it's mostly on roads, I always do. It's just part of the deal. I can't even go. Like, I uh, I had to go to the bank, which was near my house. And, like, even then, I was like, oh, am I going to put earplugs in or not? No, I, and, I, and I didn't. But it was, like, because I was going two blocks. If I'm going more than two blocks, I'm putting earplugs in. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Where I was like, in terms of noise, like, it's, always, it's so much easier just to put earplugs in and yeah. to prevent that. And ventilation for me is such a big deal. I'm a, especially like a track helmet. You are a sweaty motherfucker. I'm a sweaty dude. I, I break a sweat pretty easily. And that's just, that's just me. And I know my body. And um, having that extra airflow is a huge deal to me. And having fresh air while I'm working hard is a huge deal to me. And you, from a, from a dynamic standpoint on the human body, your feet, your hands, your neck and your head are huge parts of your air conditioning system for your oh, yeah. body of you, your of your cooling system we'll I want to say it. it's like 70% of your cooling power comes through your head because yeah, sure. it's 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 thin skin there's not a lot of fat and it's a lot of capillaries so you have it's like a radiator like think of it yeah. just no, it is like a, a radiator exchanger, it's little right? it's little fins your yep. little veins are little fins yep. and you're flowing air uh, your head is your primary thing. heat exchanger yeah well that's the same thing like when you're cold you got to put a hat on like that's the thing and i'm with you and i i i feel if you can't tell the difference between venting and not with them up open or closed on any helmet and any temperature then you the venting does not work like i i have a a, a oh, i can't remember it's a it's an awry i don't i think it's a vector 2 is what i'm i'm wearing now and i'd wore it a vector before because both of them were ducati helmets so when i was working for the company i would get them cheap and they I was just noticing it on my on my trip here um, from well, I went to the Steens Mountains or the Steens Mountain uh, in Eastern Oregon last weekend, and it's noticeable. And I we, it was eighty five degrees um, in certain places, and we but we were still having to go through uh, really cold up in mountain passes. So you have to have good venting period to be able to handle both. Right, you got to have jacket and helmet that can be tightened up, and then that can be loosened once you once you get to the eighty degrees, eighty five degrees. You got to be able to feel those vents, and and Arise always worked that well. Um, my uh, uh, AGV was okay. I had a whatever the higher end, not a P- Pista, 
but it was a Simoncelli replica that was a... Was it a Corsa or was it before the Corsa? I don't know. It was a Simoncelli replica. So GP Tech, probably. It was a fancier... And it, so it was rad because it was quiet as all get out. It didn't have the side it's plates. It's probably a GP Tech. Yeah, because that was a quiet helmet. It's one of the more quiet ones. It was on amazing. Yeah. I thought that was great, but I'd, I'd, I'd way rather have... That was a race bike helmet, right? And that was it. So I'd way rather have, a, uh, have something with venting myself. And I've been... Straight up, I've been a, an awry wearing person since ah, 1995. So I haven't deviated too much. I don't remember what the model <clears throat> of the awry I had. It was a Jimmy Adamo replica from the early 90s. And then I had a RX7R3 and never deviated from RX7RR3s up until I was sponsored by KBC as a racer. And I would get free helmets for a long time from KBC. And those were meh. Right, that's a that's a Korean company that did okay, but you know the helmets would get nasty quickly. Like the internal, the a lot of people don't realize how critical it is that hypoallergenic, um, whatever whatever it is that's the the cushioning antibacterial. Yeah, yeah. all of it is so critical, and and having good material and is for me it's a huge deal. Like I have had an XD or an X. It's a it's their off roady style helmet but like the venture tour um helmet the, the Arai? the Arai, yeah oh, X- xd4 xd4 i have an xd3 which is a weird one because it didn't it was a diavel helmet and i put a shield on it so it be turned it into an xd4 and i've been using that as a dirt bike helmet for like three years now and it's rad uh because the material is wonderful and it's all comfortable whereas dirt bike helmets usually get tore the f up quick because they're just constantly being you're sandblasting them with dirt and shit and nastiness so that's impressive stuff and that's for me that's what i look uh, at in the in a helmet just as much as i do the other things but i want optical clarity uh with the face shields uh for sure i want comfort oh not just comfort the first time i put it on but the comfort like a year later when i'm still wearing it after sweaty track days and um sweaty long distance touring rides um, I don't care about noise as much. I I do. I mean, it's neat to have a helmet that's quiet, but not at the not to sacrifice the not the to airflow. sacrifice the whole, and, nope. I, and you don't get around that. That's why I just sit there and I, I hear people sometimes they ask me like, "Well, how noisy is it?" And I was like, "Why do you care?" Because you should be having earplugs and and well, that even with earplugs, I will note that that helmet's not loud. It's loud. Yeah, right? but I like for me, it's just. I don't care. Like I, the question should be how much air, how much air are you getting? Yeah, not, sure. not how noisy it is. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to see where they're going. I mean, it's, these are very popular helmets for a ride. They're getting a lot of the updates that the Corsair got. So what are the price points relative to the Corsair? I think it's like 650 And a Corsair, like solid colors. ish Yeah. Yeah. And then up to a thousand for depending what replica you're doing, I think. Sure. So substantial savings. There's just things. Pretty much this. The, I don't think uh, you're uh, giving up too much. I, in fact, I, I weighed my. So here's the thing. My, my Corsair X is still coming back to me because I could only bring one helmet on the plane back, and we had three, so we we're having it shipped. But I weighed my old Corsair, the the RX7, RX7, RV7. Don't know. This is what I hate when they do like numbers and letters. Yep. The old generation Corsair. This is the APRC of helmets. Yeah, it is. And so it was funny. Just before we got here, I, I weighed that and the Signet that I that I brought on the plane with me. And they're like 17 grams difference in weight. So you're like, well, that's pretty impressive. That's a lot. Grams. 17 grams is like nothing. Yeah. It's like nothing. That's like, it's like a handful of cornflakes. 
Is it? Yeah, it's nothing. I don't I don't think the human body is capable of perceiving 17 grams difference in on their head. Okay. All right. But it, it was just for me it was just interesting just to see what the the old high-end helmet versus the new medium-end helmet and where they stacked up. Um, I like that Arai is adding pin locks as standard oh, on wow. their clear sure. and tinted visors. That's an awesome feature. The new pod system, pod. the the where you click in the visor, yeah, that's different. It's it started a uh, same thing on the Corsair. It's it's different than how it used to be. So if you're an old Arai helmet where this is going to be a new and weird thing, and it's going to take you a minute to figure out, I do think it's better. It's very intuitive. It's very intuitive to figure out versus like the old one is like kind of like clicking it in and you kind of, you had yeah. to have like a, a you magic had to feel. You had to have a magic touch. You had to do it a couple times. Yep. You weren't going to be good the first time you did it. Yeah. It um, feels like you're ripping the helmet apart. Yeah. Like you're breaking the helmet. Yep. I remember that. Um, so that's cool. Um, yeah. I, I was pleased. Arai, Arai makes good helmets. Um, I think there's, there's some interesting stuff in the helmet space. The, you know, we've said it before. I think the hundred dollar head by a hundred dollar helmet line is total bullshit. And, um, I think, I think that line was actually started by a rye. Yeah. Um, and, and it was interesting that in the, in the, the, the presentation, they're like, we, we've been making helmets the same way for 30 years and we make them to a, a set of standards that are rye standards. And we don't care if that means our helmets don't test well, for on crash tests and certain like crash analyses. And they talked a little bit about MIPS and rotational vectors and things like that. And how that's kind of like a hot thing in the, in the sector right now. MIPS. I don't even know what MIPS stands for, but it's talking MIPS was, I think it was actually started by AGV, but it's, it's just a concept of um, developing technology to counter the rotational force because helmets usually are taking glancing blows. Yeah. And so you see like bells coming out with these, um, whether EPC, their styrofoam, uh, has like some flex to it. Uh, 6D has a, a, a system where it uses like these elast- elastometer. Elastomer. Elastomer. What do you call those? Elastomer N- stacks? Nubs. Yeah. It's basically like a shell within a shell with like kind of like a rubber, basically a flexible rubber that, yep. that has a little give and acts like uh, a little Elastomer suspension. stack would be for those interested would be the same type of thing you find in the truck of a uh, skateboard, right? So there's those little squishy things that you can change the durometer of, and it makes the truck feel looser or tighter. And that that's the last stack. I have no idea how the trucks of a skateboard work. Now, so you, now you know. Now, now you know. know. No, it's half the battle. So yeah, interesting interesting to hear them say that. Like there's, I had a really good conversation. We had a couple of good conversations at dinner and, and later off a colleague of mine about that. And there's there's two sides you can look at it. Um, because I really do think Araya makes a high quality helmet. I think they make one of the better helmets on the market. If you're buying an Araya, you're gonna get it. You're paying. There's a reason you're gonna pay for that much because it's one of the best yep. helmets, fit and finish. Always good venting. Always good air circulation. Always good optics. Um, you're you're not gonna be disappointed when you buy an Araya, uh, for sure. But there is that part of me that's like, I know how I know how these things get built. I've worked with composites enough in my life i understand business enough that after you pay for i know the molds that sure. they that they make that you're just printing money and so when i hear a company like Arai that has been very conservative they're a very conservative company they're the quintessential japanese company and the idea just look how resistant they were to selling on the internet and I mean, that probably cost them millions and millions of dollars 
And their argument was, well, we want people to come in and get fitted, right? And you're like, that's a great argument. That's a, But the reality is I think you were just trying to protect your dealer network. And that was because that was very much a t- point in time for the motorcycle industry where brick and mortar stores were feeling the pressure of yeah. online stores. And there was a big pushback in the motorcycle industry around the turn of the millennium. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was a big thing. And a ride, truthfully, I think, back the wrong side. Um, but there is something to be said about loyalty. So I'll give them that. And I think that, it's a, and that's a good conversation. That's to a have whole other jam. And another, yeah, because this this is a big problem with a with the industry. It's a huge problem, and it has been for fifteen years. And it's something that, that is worth talking about. So. Well, this this podcast is a great example. So so um, actually, we're going to do something a little different later in the show with with showing how we want to monetize the show. But just going around and talking to advertisers, like like a lot of them don't know what a podcast is. Yeah, sure. And I it's literally, just like the, you have to do when you talk about asphalt and rubber. So there's this series of tubes. Yeah, we call it the internet. <laughs> I mean, thank thank God it's a little bit easier for a podcast. From like, it's just like radio, but it's like it's on your DVR. Like it's it's live demand. Like you want to yeah. listen to the show now? I'm right there in your DVR. Yeah, but it's a radio show. I don't have to record it. No, yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't have to press the two buttons on your tape deck but, and get but to record. That's the great thing. You sit there and you get like some fifty-year-old white hair who does no <laughs> idea what a smartphone is. Um, never has listened to a podcast in their entire life. Doesn't realize that like one in five Americans is a, is a hardcore podcast listener. And you're like, well, I wonder why you're having a hard time reaching a younger audience hmm. who listens to podcasts. Mm-hmm, that's funny how that works. Anyways, that's that's a whole other thing. And you're just talking about the industry guys that work for Yamaha, yeah. Suzuki, Kawasaki, and Harley Davidson. Anywho, anywho, advertising dollars for asphalt rubber down the drain. Yeah, just no hopes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose a lot of weight over the winter because I'm not gonna have any food. <laughs> Sorry, but right. so yeah, going back to like once once a helmet company makes the molds and pays back the cost of making that tooling for all that. I mean. I don't know, like right off the top of my head, how much a helmet probably costs. Because hundred bucks, because that's my guess. Less, because like the shell and the foam don't cost. They cost almost nothing. You're paying for a factory. You're paying for the liner. You're paying for the vents. Yeah. You're paying for the. You're paying for the marketing. You're paying for the racing program. You're paying yes. for materials. And I definitely like. You know, I'm, I'm kind of using a rye as my whipping boy here. But I do think you get more when you buy an Arai. I don't think you get a safer helmet when you buy from Arai. And that's not me saying Arai's aren't safe. That's me saying that pretty much any helmet that's made out of a composite material and uses an EPC-style foam for impact, um, for, for, for lessening the, the, the energy transmitted on an impact, is going to act more or less the same, assuming they're all built correctly. Um and, you know, when we look at crash test data, it's like, oh, we had 200 newton meters or sorry, 200 newtons uh, transmitted to the to the head or we had 300 newtons transmitted to the head. And then I sit there and I'm like, I don't know in real world terms how much of a difference that's really making. Is that a concussion, a bad concussion or no concussion? Like, what's the difference here? Um, but it, it's interesting. I think a lot of that plays into the reason like we don't see a lot of development in the helmet space. And it's. You look at a ride that's that's probably more conservative than say some of its competitors, and their idea of like, oh well, we're just going to keep building helmets the same way we've always been. You know, crash results be damned. And it's like, well, you know, I like the argument that you're doing it because you believe the way you're doing it is the safest way possible. You believe in the Snell standard, and that's your jam. And you know, 
you you believe that's correct and you're going to do what you think is correct. And that's great. And if you buy that argument, I think that's fair. But there's a part of me that's a little cynical. It's like, well, you know, that's also like from a business perspective, the most economical and most smart way to make money because you're not changing your recipe. You're not changing yeah, your sure. molds. You're not having to retool and find new materials and do all, do all this stuff. You're changing the stuff when you like when we do talk about the difference between like the Quantum X or the Signet X or the Corsair X and their predecessors, what we're talking about is is the cheap stuff. The changes are the cheap stuff. Now, you know, you get a partnership pin lock and you do some cool things and you have some value-added features that help justify the higher price tag. But it's not like you've made this radical leap in helmet technology. It's not like your helmet that costs like five times more than like a budget helmet is therefore five times better when it comes to protection, which is the number one reason people wear helmets. Sure. And I'm waiting, and I, and I had this conversation with the guys at AGV, where I was just like, I don't understand why you don't realize, because AGV and Dainese are the same parent company, the same company, same ownership. You have the D-Air airbag technology. You have a helmet company. How are you not putting your D-Air technology inside your helmet? Like active yeah. protection helmets, I think, are the future. And that would work uh, um, and with synergy to the to the the leather suit or the jacket or something you've already got the electronics there you already got all that 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 mystical know-how and you already have all this techno all this understanding of how airbags work and making them work in the motorcycle industry and it's just for me it's like lowest hanging fruit other than the fact that like you're gonna have to radically change how you make your helmets you're gonna have to put a huge amount of capital costs in developing the machines and the molds and the whatever's to, to make that happen when truthfully you can probably make a thousand dollar helmet for probably 20 bucks in cost of goods and just laugh all the way to the bank with your 980 dollars in profit yeah and that's the helmet industry in a nutshell and that's why you can see hundred dollar helmets and thousand dollar helmets made in the exact same factory by the exact same people by the exact same third party black label helmet provider and and people don't know the difference um but a lot of that's perception a lot of that is the features that go on top of it and that's that's the helmet industry in a nutshell i don't see i don't see really anyone doing anything that makes me say that's really groundbreaking that's really interesting tech like you've now taken the next evolution to to helmet design we're we're making we're basically wearing the same helmets we were 70 years or, or not 70 sorry 30 years ago in the 1970s i guess that's 40 years now yeah i keep losing track of my decades yeah 40 years ago Heck, I'll give them. I'll give them the extra decade. Say thirty years ago, we're wearing the same helmets we were wearing thirty years ago, and the only thing that's that's changed is we've figured out how to make them better, like in terms of quality of manufacturing. Yeah, I think about my first helmet was easily a late eighties. Yeah, easily uh, designed or had been sold in the late eighties. I had my my very first helmet that was decent because I my my dad bought me some. I can't imagine what it was, maybe a Fulmer or something completely pl- plastic and didn't have any, ugh, whatever. That was a very cheap helmet. But I, I had an RF200 showy, and I had that probably for 30,000 miles when I was 16, 17, 18, maybe. Um, 16, 17, yeah, exactly. So that, um, I can't, the helmets are really not that much different. The The pluses have been with the interiors and the uh um, the systems for putting the shields on and yeah, off. The and features, the, yeah, the, the perks. Right, but the general yeah. thing that makes a helmet a helmet, the shell, the foam, and yeah, same thing. You're right, sure. So it's interesting. You know, I would I would really like to see 
don't know. I don't think a rise this company, but it'd be awesome if they were. To, I would love to see some true innovation. And I don't mean like scully innovation. I mean like sit down and think about how heads impact the ground. If we had to redesign the helmets today with the technology that we have available to us, how do we do that? And, and don't even say how, if we had to redesign helmets, I say, how would we protect the head? How are you going to protect your cranium and your skull and your brain? Understanding that your brain's like basically just sitting in this like vat of water inside your head. So it's not even so much yeah. protecting your skull. It's like, that's how you get a concussion. Basically your brain runs into the, the inside of your skull yeah. and, gets, and gets bruised. Um, we need to inject collagen or silicone into our heads to make it firmer. Well, you know, it's funny. I forget. I forget what we were talking about. Um, we brought up Demolition Man. I guess there's. I, I was trying to watch Demolition Man today on. H, it's actually on HBO, and um, for some reason it won't play. I guess it's not available yet. But it was funny that we were talking about it. And I saw it today at lunch, and I was trying to watch it. But I guess there's this scene where like they crash the car, and it like fills up with foam to protect them from the impact. Yeah, which is like a. Um, Along the same principles of like an airbag, basically. Like yeah. airbag's probably like a better version of that. Sure. But I don't get why that's not a thing for your head. Like I, that seems like such a no-brainer. There's actually a great startup. I don't even know if they're a startup. You shouldn't say no-brainer with this. Uh, yeah, that's really, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, <I'm> nuts. <laughs> There's this great Swedish company that developed uh, an airbag helmet for bicyclists. And it, and it. It, yeah, it wears like a collar. And uh-huh. This has been around for this has been around for almost a decade. This technology, but it's it's got the same. It's that same idea of it's basically like the Dainese or Alpine Stars system where it's got a computer with gyroscopes. It senses a crash and it inflates. And it's like it looks like a football helmet when it inflates. Yeah, it goes neat. all the way around the head. Yeah, it's neat. Um, and I sit there and I look at that and I'm like. Fuck bicyclists, man. You know, motorcyclists need that. Why isn't that in the motorcycling space? That is so freaking obvious that I don't understand why no one is doing it. And I I mean, maybe there's some IP and there's some patent law, but like license it, you know? And I look at companies like Dainese and AGV. I look at companies like Alpine Stars that are developing airbag tech. And I sit there, I just want to shake them. I just want to shake them like a baby and just be like, you should make this. This is what the, this is what we need because imagine how much more padding you can put into the equation. Cause that's the thing with helmets, right? It's just how big do you want to make your helmet to fit how much more foam in there? Yeah. You know, that's, that's the whole ball of wax. It's like how much, if you're really, you know, focused on getting a lightweight helmet, it's like how much foam, how little foam can you put in there and still get away with DOT or ECE or Snell certification? Because it's really, really, really easy to make a safe helmet. You just keep adding foam. But it's really hard to make a light and safe helmet because you gotta shave away, you know, and, and it's compromised. I think there's I think there's a there's a if you look at the numbers, there's a fairly good inverse relationship between weight and uh safety. Safety ratings, I should say, crash test ratings. Yeah, sure. Um and a rise argument that crash, you know, they don't build for crash test ratings. They build for real world. It's like, well, to say that, then you have to say that the crash test ratings are useless and, and meaningless. And I don't know if that's the case. They're not perfect, but like we have to have some sort of objective way to test these helmets. And um, it'll be interesting. I, I, I really, I really hope in the next five to ten years we see we see this change because. It all comes back to, I think we've talked about this a few times on the show, like if you start protecting the people in this industry, they'll stay in the industry longer and that only means good things for this industry. It sure. means 
a better perception of motorcyclists. It means more motorcyclists on the road. It means people stay in the industry and be in, and are motorcyclists for a longer time because they're not, you know, getting injured or worse dying. So it's a whole, it's a whole thing. I think that's my helmet rant. Good helmet rant. Yeah. Good helmet rant. Um, other than that, yeah, good time riding around on the end, uh, three wheels scooter on it. So, so what we, ad- we haven't talked about, uh, you and I at all, I don't think, even in our private conversations, is I was on a, a consulting call the other week with Polaris. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you'd mentioned it, but we didn't get into it because you wanted to talk about it yeah, on the podcast. We want, I want to podcast it with you. So uh, we'll keep it real quick. It was just, it was really interesting to see. So I don't have any sort of confidentiality, I wasn't paid for it. So, um, I'm just going to highlight that up front. So there's not any like kind of like cries of conflict or, or favoritism. Um, but it was really interesting to, to talk to them and see a lot of their questions were asking about sport bikes. And I think that that's, you know, they were very upfront. Like we want to talk to you cause you're asphalt and rubber. Asphalt and rubber is very sport bike focused. You're the sport bike guy. Let's talk to you. And so it was very curious to hear one, them say that. And two, have them ask me questions about like, so what kind of sport bike do you think Indian could make? What kind of sport bike do you think uh, Victory could could make? Where do you see that fitting in? What do you think of the slingshot and things like that? So you very much got the impression that they're looking to expand those brands beyond where they are now with a more sporty focus and definitely targeting uh, younger riders. Well, it's obvious that they're doing it. You know, I look up on a TV screen in a bar and I see Victory sponsoring drag bikes and I see them going up and down to Pikes Peak with, uh, well, that was the Victory, right? They branded that, or did they that's brand Victory. that Indian? That was Victory. That was Victory. Indian, the Scout, seeing them kind of bend. Like the Scout doesn't look too cruiser. I mean, it is, but it's there's some aspects of it that are on the sports side. You see them getting involved with flat track, right? Right. So there's a lot of blending to where they're obviously itching to get a different piece of the market. And that was my response to them. Like for Indian, I was like, Take your your flat track race bike, put a headlight, put some signals and a license plate on it, and that thing will sell like hotcakes. That thing looks hot. I I still think there's a market for street trackers. I think Harley Davidson missed the boat. Yeah, five, six, seven, eight years ago by not well, one they killed it off the XR twelve hundred, which was a weird little bike, but was in if the right the vein. If the XR twelve hundred wasn't a bucket of shit, then it would have been okay. If you had gotten some people that actually knew what the fuck they were doing, that would have been a bitchin' bike. It could have been. I mean, from a look and a I, vibe standpoint, you shave 100 pounds off it, you put a decent engine in it, and you put a decent chassis that doesn't have almost literally a elastomer stack hinge at the swing arm, and you might have something that, that could go well, right? And that is what that flat track bike has the potential to be. Potential. And I know industrializing a flat track bike is gnarly there's a lot to it because those things are pure racing machines well you right? don't yeah i mean it's like uh it's like the desmo sidichi rr right if i can if i can make a ducati reference without offending oh, too many people i don't people. know you don't want to talk about ducati but, it, but it's that great thing where it's like it's not it's not the race bike with lights on it it's completely ground up new design yeah. inspired by the race bike it's industrial but, but made to be a street bike sure it, it's that same thing where you know like take something in your lineup, make it look like that, that street tracker vibe. And I think that could appeal to a younger rider while still being authentic to like, say the Indian brand or to the, uh, the, the victory brand. I think victory truthfully as a brand can do just about anything yeah. in the street bike market. Cause yeah. I don't think they've pigeon pigeonholed themselves in that like cruiser only vibe because they've been so like the anti Harley for so long 
you you don't have to follow Harley Davidson on that route. Whereas Indian is kind of like the they're I mean they are the Pepsi to Harley Davidson's Coke. Yeah. So they're trying to do the same thing. That's gets a little hard, but could totally be a flat track machine. Could totally go and do something like that. And you could totally cross brand them. The the victory could look very sleek and modern, and the Indian could look more old school, like 60s, and they could, you know, that it might sacrifice sales a little bit, but you'd have people that are like, oh, I'm on my victory, and the other ones, well, I'm on my Indian, and they're both V-twin, cool, interesting, sporty things, and then you make a, a super sport out of one of them. Somehow, wouldn't be that hard. It's not that far of a bridge to build to get that motor into a sport-oriented vehicle, I don't think. And that's one of the things I brought up was, you know, I used uh, in the conversation Eric Buell Racing as an example. Or not Eric Buell, but Buell itself. And, you know, Buell's sport bikes, I think it's fair to say, were failures. Even if you you don't have to have a gr- an axe to grind with Buell to be able to say that. Like, I think if you're truthful about the brand, those were failures. But, like, the bikes that seemed to work were, like, the street bikes, like the Ulysses. Yeah. It's like, you know, that big V-twin power plant and that kind of styled bike with the upright position. And it's it's not trying to be a spark bike. It's just a good street bike. It really lends itself to that. And I think you can do the same thing with with these brands in, in that format. Where it's like, you can still keep your big honking V-twin engine, but put it like in a decent upright street bike, sporty bike chassis. And that could do some really good things. You're not going to go take it to the racetrack. It's not a track bike. Let's not go pretend anything. it's anything it isn't. But like a sport touring kind of jammer, a street touring bike. Sure. That could really be cool. So that was the conversation you had with them, kind of? Yeah, Because they much. just asked you a bunch of loaded questions? Just a lot of questions. Um, I think actually we're going to get a um, uh, Victory Octane pretty soon for What's the garage. That? That's like the Indian Scout. That's what I was going to say. Like they've already kind of done this crossover because they have the Indian Scout and the Victory Octane, and they're almost the identical same bike. They're very, very similar. So I get to go cruise around on that in Portland for a little bit, and um, I think I'm going to give them some feedback on on what a sport biker thinks of those bikes. How long of a burnout you can do? Yeah, basically. But I think that's the thing. I think you know that's the impression I got is that up there they don't really have like a a sport bike person that can say like oh yeah this bike feels great like when they go and they build a you know truthfully the 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 victory octane didn't get the best of reviews when it came out because i think it was trying to be that sport bike kind of thing yeah and it's just not and i think it's because you have a bunch of cruiser guys trying to make a a sportier cruiser and they don't really know what that is as opposed to I mean, Ducati they, they, they know trying to make it. Exactly. They don't, it, it's just, it's too far outside their core competency. So it's interesting to see they're trying. It's interesting to see that they're they're looking to take a bigger piece out of the pie. At least that's how it it, it looks from my seat. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm really bullish on Polaris right now. They are kicking ass and taking names. They're acquiring a lot of really interesting brands. They acquired Brama with their electric bike. Um, climb. Climb. Um, timber Sled. Uh they acquired a company called Gem, which makes like electric vehicles, which is interesting. I mean, they're they every couple months or so, I see they bought another brand and they're bringing in people. And I really, I really think Indian is being smartly run. I really think Victory could be a, a really strong brand that that could sell, you know, forty fifty thousand bikes a year um, and be and be sustainable at that. They could be like a Ducati level type brand, and they just they just keep working away at it and they keep they keep succeeding. So. Interesting stuff from from Polaris and Indian and Victory. Uh, with that, Quentin, um, 
I think we have a listener question. And actually, we're going to try something new where we have like a sponsored listener question. Oh. Which is one of the ways we're thinking about monetizing this uh, this podcast. So we're going to have a question here from from Mike Kim from Rizoma, who's a big fan of the podcast, actually, and a big fan of Asphalt and Rubber. And I um, I should preface, we're not getting paid for it. But um, this is kind of the format we were, were thinking of doing. Yep. And um, Mike had a really great question he sent in the other week for the show. And I looked at it and I was like, one, you need to get us an audio file so we can play it on the show because that'd be better. And like two, I was like, oh, it got me thinking like this would be an interesting way to doing this. And I have no idea. I've never seen another podcast do anything like this. So I'm not really sure if it's going to work. But um, it's usually the best kind of thing because you can try it and it's good. We're going we're gonna to live beta this shit. So let's do it. Hey guys, it's Mike from Rizoma. Big fan of the show, and um, I had a quick Ducati question. Um, I was wondering, Ducati's got the 11 degree overlap, and they've got that secondary um, air injection. So I'm wondering, how does the O2 sensor get a good reading? Um, how is the O2 sensor going to know if maybe there's a fuel pump problem or uh, a leak somewhere in the system? Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you can help clear that up and definitely look forward to hearing the next podcast. Catch you later. Thanks guys. See ya. Thanks Mike. And thank you for not saying anything oh, about kickstands, man. I was about to say team Jensen coming through. Say, that's the first one. I think we're not, there's no, you know, hashtag KSU. Yeah. But you notice the questions like just for you basically so you had to throw me a bone okay yeah right so that's yeah. that's how that works you're a bone taker for sure oh wow so uh that was our first and last sponsored <laughs> questions well that was quentin thank you uh so the uh there's a lot going on there right there's a lot going on there. there's a lot so. going on there so so describe for me oh, you go ahead no actually. i'm gonna have to go ahead so first off he, he says something about the 11 degree overlap. So in the since the uh, Ducati Multistrada came out, they they called that engine the Testistrada 11 degree. That was in the uh, the Diavels, Street Fighter A48s, uh, A21 Monster, 1200 mod, but all the all the four valves almost from from the point of the Multistrada had that engine. What that is is valve overlap, but it was never in the superbike line. No, that's the point. Right. Is that the overlap the more overlap you have and this is something that i'm not going to get into deeply on the podcast because it would take too long but um bot- but but by all means google valve overlap and i will say this from a practical standpoint if you're ever out on the street and you hear a gnarly hot rod v8 hot rod car or like an old camaro or something that's gnarly and big v8 coming down the road and it's barely uh barely revving or it's at idle and you hear it kind of that is uh, an engine with a huge amount of overlap and that means when it's at high rpm it's at its most efficient and it's creating the most power but at low rpm you're giving up a lot because there's a lot of unburnt fuel just blasting out kind of it's in an efficiency. How's it go? Right. You heard it. You heard it. No, 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 no. I think I think there was someone they were like they're like fiddling with the dial. They're probably driving their car. They had to change the lane. They're like, wait, what was that? Was that my flat tire that was on the boat? Yeah. So that that it's most of the time you'll hear you'll hear an old timer say, Oh man, that thing's got a cam. And it's true, but it really it's not just the cam, it's the it's the overlap in the cam that is allowing it to be really efficient at high RPM. And on the motorcycle side, because the 
motorcycles have to have a rev range so deep because the RPMs go so high above 10,000, you know, a cami engine on a, on an old V8, it's, you it might rev to 6,000 RPM, right? As opposed to a, a Ducati Panigale that's revving to you know, 11.7 or something like that, right? So they, they have to have uh, a wide range that is efficient at low RPM and high RPM, mainly for emissions purposes, mainly to idle comfortably and meet the extremely lean conditions that um, Euro 4, CARB, CARB, and, uh, and the EPA have dictated that they run. So it's a problem. It's very difficult to get a, a, an engine to perform at top end um, uh, high, highly, and then at low end, uh, also have the emissions, right? It can perform at low end. You just have to dump a bunch of fuel at it, and it ends up being horrendously inefficient and also pollution, a lot of pollution. So they, uh, uh, an equivalent 1098 or 1198 of the same, so it's, so let's just call apples to, to, to kumquats here, maybe. You got the 1198 uh, Testa Evo engine, and then you had the, the 1200 Multistrata engine. Uh, ostensibly the same thing, different throttle bodies, different exhaust, but generally it's the same born stroke about almost exactly. Same case. Similar, uh, similar cam timing, similar cams in general. There are little differences, but the main thing was that the, uh, the, they put the overlap at 11 degrees uh, for way improved uh, idle, off idle, and low RPM running. And they sacrificed the little on top because it didn't matter because who's revving their bike at... 11,000 RPM when you're on a Multistrada. It happens, but it's not the it's not in the duty cycle for that engine of where the customer wants it, right? So that is what the Testistrada 11 degree is. Um, the Panigale, I don't even know what a Panigale's overlap is, but it's probably pretty freaking extreme. Like 35, 40, yeah, something and it like would that. Be. Yeah. So the one on the 1198, sorry, is 41. So that's an extreme amount, right? So to go from 41 which if you have a 2007-1098 or you bought one in, in uh, 2007, you probably suffered through uh, myriad woes with them stalling, uh, hard starting, uh, low RPM running problems and, and on and on and on because they weren't... Would this be why like my Street Fighter sucks below like 15 miles It's part of it. It's part of it. No, and, but that's not why. It's because they had to meet the emissions. If they were able to, to map it correctly, generally it should be okay. Um, it's not it's great. Part of the, it's part of the problem. Though. But it is. That's, yeah, that's okay. a, a, the piece of the pie. So that's where the 11 degree thing comes in. And that kind of is separate from the other. I just wanted to make sure there was an understanding of that because that's separate. It all plays into it because we're all talking about emissions here. So with with um, the exact, there's, there's two different things that could be going on. There's exhaust gas recirculation, which is not what's going on. I want to make sure there's no confusion there where you actually are pumping exhaust gases um, directly into the intake, right? So you're you're trying to fool the system by by putting inert gas that isn't combustible into the intake. And I can't, I'm not going to lie, I'm not a chemist, I'm not a physicist, and I don't know enough about it to know why that would work, but it improves emissions. This is air injection. So it's putting air into the exhaust's after the exhausts valves and it it changes the mixture of uh, of the exhaust gas before it hits the O2 sensor the O2 sensor is one of the one of the suite of sensors that is telling the ECU how to fuel the bike so you're effectively tricking the O2 sensor 
into thinking that it's leaner than it is, less fuel, right? Because you're getting pure oxygen and or mildly contaminated oxygen into the into the exhaust port. You're basically, after. you're like you're diluting the exhaust. You're basically. diluting it a little bit, which yeah. is which is a way to almost circumvent the um, circumvent the the uh, the system saying, okay, well, it's rich and and it's it's going to act rich. Well, it's not, and it allows the cat to function at uh, as well. So the cat is still um, the catalytic converter is still. Um, effectively functioning and what's actually coming out of the tailpipe is fine it's it passes the emissions it is cheating in a little bit of a way because you're able to fuel it a little bit better and then you got this uh, so so it'll run a little bit better it'll it'll idle a little bit better it'll it'll be off throttle a little bit better it'll be a little smoother but then it won't actually out of the tailpipe create more um uh you name the the bad gases that could come out of it, right? So NOx or uh, carbon monoxide are, are are defeated to a point a little bit, a little bit more, and that's what is in most of these engines. And it's not just a Ducati question. This is uh, most performance motorcycles, whether it be KTM, Yamaha. Everybody makes block off plates for these things. Say, this is like a pair valve on a Suzuki. Yeah, you know what? And I'm not going to know the acronyms for all the companies, but Yamaha has a, probably a, a Yix or Yikes or Yikes or whatever, same type of thing. There's probably like three dashes in it and there's a Y for yeah, sure. Probably and so. no valves. Why? Why? Um, so yeah, and, but most of them are reed valves where you get the, the air goes in, but exhaust gases can't go back. So if there's like a, I don't know, a pop or a, a, you know, a, an external combustion in the intake, it's not going to go back up through and at, to the valve that um, there's, a, there's a specific valve that actuates this that allows the air into the, into the exhaust ports, right? So there's always uh, these little reed valves. And a reed valve would be, if you're into musical instruments, it's a, it's a flat piece of metal in this case that seals against a flat surface and if air is pointed one way it is only it's going to seal and it's not going to allow whereas going the other way it opens and allows through so, so let me interrupt real quick so like i know like i, I know pair valves on suzuki's because i had my my tlr and yep. that was a big yeah. modification that people would do why would you take that off it sounds like to me you want to leave that on Nah, and, and that's a great it's a great question and, and most people Nowadays, you could leave them on, but it's it's a, a yet another complexity in a system where you just don't want to have to deal with it. Frankly, more than anything, it's just when you're working on the bike, it's one less set of bullshit hoses to have to deal with because it would mean absolutely nothing to your performance bike at higher RPM. So why even have that extra crap in the? But it's going to make your bike run better because I'm no, gonna, it won't. It won't. I, at low speeds, it's not. Yeah, who who cares, right? If you're racing, I'm, or not, you're I'm not talking about. I'm talking about like street guys that take these things. Oh, off. it's stupid. It's it's titanically stupid to take it off. Yeah. Okay, I would call it titanically, but it, but it's going to go against your idea of like, hey, I'm trying to make my bike run better. Yeah, it's that's just going down to get groceries. It's a great way to for uh, aftermarket companies <clears> to sell cute little billet parts and make you feel good about billet it. parts that they make for like ten cents and sell for like fifty dollars. Possibly, possibly. If sounds smart. like the theme of the show. Sure. Um, I don't. There are situations where yes, you will be able to make it feel better at low end uh, if you take that off and then put on some sort of piggyback system or whatever. But in most cases, specifically if you're leaving it stock, it is really dumb to take that off and really difficult to um, to get it to work right without it. it. Sometimes it can be easy. It depends on the tuner. 
But I, my recommendation, especially on the Ducati side, is no, nah, leave that in there. That's a very robust system. It's well designed. It works. And if you think you're going to get an extra 0.001 of a horsepower uh, through the mid-range or better throttle response, I'm sorry, but I think you're sorry and mistaken. And if I put you up to the Pepsi challenge with it, you would fail. Uh, pretty quickly. Uh, it's not big enough of a change. It just isn't. Whereas if you took the catalytic converter out, that would be a noticeable change. You'd get a little bit of throttle response. You'd get crisper. You would feel that. Absolutely. That would be a feelable thing. Whereas the the, uh, the air injection, eh, no, it's not worth it. And the systems are really good. Maybe early systems uh, were bad enough to be where it would, it would affect it uh, poorly over time. Sometimes they get clogged with uh, exhaust, uh, burnt, uh, exhaust and or oil. So if there's something else down the chain that's failing or there's a problem, you can get contamination and that will cause an issue over time for sure. But not, not if everything else is, is good. Um, I, it's not a bad thing to take them out. If somebody said, I'm going to take this out. I don't think a lot of Tweety birds are going to fall out of the sky. Um, from a, from a, a standpoint of actually, what are we doing? But I, the bike, the bike would not run well if Everything else is the same if you still have the, the O2 sensor in there. So what he his next question or his question within that was how can the O2 sensor tell? It's like, well, it's been it's been designed with that in there, right? It it knows, or the the people that uh, developed the algorithm that fed the ECU that said, okay, if the O2 sensor is seeing, you know, whatever voltage, this is how you're gonna fuel at this RPM at this load, and then at this RPM with this load and with it, this gear. Um, right. Cause a lot of the bikes have gear position sensors and they're going gear to gear, uh, knowing that the each, loads, each gonna... gear has a different map. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and each cylinder with each gear has a different map in some, in a lot of cases, right. Yeah. On a, say a Panigale, this is a good example. Uh, I'm going to refrain from saying Ducati. I'll just say Panigale. <laughs> yeah. That's um, fixing the problem. <laughs> uh, one thing that's of note is like a lot of people in the beginning of those would try and synchronize the throttle bodies. Like most people would, you, you want the same exact vacuum out of both cylinders at idle. Well, that's not how it works with those engines. It's a different strategy. So you actually have to set them with a different delta between them, and they run significantly better at idle and off idle and at low RPM when you set it correctly. And the only way to do that is not to put a set of quote unquote mercury sticks, which is a way to gauge vacuum or- Yeah, I or, tried to do that and I, I'm yeah. not good at did it. Did it fail miserably? Did you pull vac? Uh, did you pull mercury into your engine? No, I did not do that. I've had, I had a friend that did that. Have which, you ever played with liquid mercury? Oh yeah. It's that's, like, it turns out you can the, hydraulic lock an engine with mercury and that it happens easily. doesn't surprise me at all. Right? It's an incredibly dense material. Yeah. Well, not dense, but incredibly- Heavy material that's liquid. I would say it's dense. Is it dense? I guess it is dense. Yeah. If dense. you put, if you had one, I, I guess one square inch of water and one square inch of mercury, the yeah, mercury is yeah, yeah. going to be a hell of a lot heavier, right? Sometimes I thought like density. I was relating density to. I'm uh, dense. I'm being dense right now. <laughs> I got some. I got some dents in my car, and I got some <laughs> some density in my head. Nice. I like pound cake. It's very dense. That makes me pound cake. If you're going to get me, you know what? Stop sending beer. Send pound cake. I love pound cake. I do. I like pound cake too, actually. That's right. probably what I'm like. What will John McGinnis Dude, say? we're totally going to have to. You're going to have to. The, the, the beginning of the show is going to be um, Van Halen pound cake. That, I don't even know what that oh, is. Oh, you, dude. I'm showing my age. All right. So anyway, density. Yes. 
uh, mercury is dense and you can screw some shit up with it. And it was a weird thing in the motorcycle industry for the longest time. How you synchronize carburetors, especially on a four cylinder inline, was you hook up this, this gauge and it looks like a bunch of sticks that go up. It's a long rectangular thing with these tubes that go up it and you hook. Is it a each, series of tubes? It's a series of tubes like the internet and you hook it up to the intake. And when you start the engine, it'll pull the mercury up out of a kind of a I don't know, a little container. It's the same way that a thermometer works. It's the same way that old school blood pressure gauges work. Similar. Or, or, or not barometric pressure gauges. Yeah, you're right. Similar. Because it's working on the bar- barometric pressure. Yeah, but kind a, of but a, them, a thermometer, that's different. That's, that's that, the expansion. Yeah, of the that's expansion. But, but this, you look at This is pulling. You right? look at a barometric pressure gauge, yeah, like, like sure. a weather vein sure. type, and that's exactly what that is. Yep. It's the mercury inches, being pulled. Inches of mercury. That's and that's exactly what they call it, right. inches of mercury, right? So you'd see it, and if you revved it too much, you could watch these mercury, they'd stay low in the tubes for the most part. And you're doing it at idle, and you adjust the throttle bodies between each other to try and get them all even. And if you revved it too much, though, it would pull the mercury up. you pull a lot of vacuum, and if you did that a couple times, it would bounce it and into the into the pipes, into the intakes, and you would literally shove mercury into your intakes. And uh, I knew somebody that bent valves that way, and that's a bad deal. There's so, no way that's that OSHA lets that happen. Oh, anymore. now that's a really big liquid, deal. Liquid mercury is nasty, nasty oh, dude, stuff. It's horrible. I, have you seen the YouTube video recently of somebody that built a toilet and flushed mercury? It is amazing. It's really what? cool. Yeah, and the guy uh, had to like it was tough to get the um, the valve to open. Like when you actually when he went to turn the handle. Oh sure, because it's just couldn't, it's just liquid weight and it's yeah. weight right. So he actually had to stick his hand and he he says this in the video. He's like, liquid mercury isn't hydroscopic or mercuroscopic or whatever it is where it will go through skin. Uh, it would be there's certain types that will go through skin. So in that case, he was able to put his hand in it, open up the valve, and then you watch the toilet flush, which was fucking cool to see it like not water. I bet. Right? I bet you he still washed his hands afterwards. Oh no doubt. But when you think you of don't it, want to mess with it's mercury. not going into your pores. But there no. was another situation where he had a um, another another chemical involved, and he was trying to take the mercury off of a plate of gold because if you stuck a plate of gold into the mercury, it, it, the mercury immediately starts acting on it, which is really cool. But then he had to put it in some sort of methyl ethyl death acid. And of course that you couldn't touch with a 10 foot pole because it would go right through your skin, right? Well, this is this is the same reason, like we, we had the phrase, mad as a hatter. Yeah. Hatters ah, used sure. a lot of mercury. Yep. And that's- In a gas form, like burning. Right. And right? that's why they would go a little- Yeah, because it was, it was actually- uh, in a steam and or gas or heat, the worst way possible. And it's right into your fucking because you're <laughs> inhaling it, right? Yeah. Did I? And I, I don't know. I'll go off on a quick aside. I had a friend in Los Angeles. He was my machinist. I probably might have even told this story on this on the podcast, but you're gonna hear it again. He was my machinist, engine. Um, he, uh, sorry, machinist, welder, and he would he would twist the bikes back in the shape on a huge big table. Um, so uh, he would bend frames and bend forks and bend wheels, and he was rad. Um, so, and he worked on helicopters in Vietnam. So he, he, I think he was a little addled from that. Uh, but back in the days prior to Vietnam, he was working at a shop that did a lot of Porsche stuff and they would harden rocker arms by dipping them in boiling arsenic because that's a night, it's a nitriding process because you're just trying, nitriding is a, like, uh, like titanium like on, on nitride. On the you see the forks, yeah, that yeah. gold, it's titanium nitride because nitride, right? So the, that was my mind blower to even, and we were like, well, you would you would see this? It was, oh yeah, I did it all the time. You'd put them in a set of pliers. You just make sure to do it outside. 
fuck right <laughs> i mean that's scary hey, shit. Bob, take that outside huh yeah take it outside so anyway um so that uh goes back to meanwhile, mercury meanwhile, we went Mike's off on a good question. one yeah. we went off a good one the bottom line though is that uh for it to affect the o2 sensor or something something else like if there was too much fuel pressure in the system the o2 sensor would find out about it and try and lean it back out the computer would do that. The O2 sensor is just sending a voltage that it's reading off of the gas that it's getting. So the gas, um, the gas that it, and when I say gas, I mean literally gas, not fuel, um, that's coming out of the combustion chambers. will give the O2 sensor a, a reading but of, of a certain amount. There, there's a certain bit, and I'm sure it gets pegged one way or the other, lean or rich, when there's too much fuel or too little fuel. And that tells the ECU, and the ECU would make uh, changes accordingly. So... You know, there's certain pieces that are solid and always going to be there. You know, your 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 cam sensor, or your crank angle sensor, whatever's telling you what the revolution in the engine is, is always going to be a very a solid thing, and it knows how fast the engine can rev, etc. But something like an air pressure gauge, you know, that can get fooled. That could get screwed with. So it it thinks it should be at you know whatever sea level is a thousand hg, or I, don't, I can't remember what the um, what the terminology is for uh, what like b- barometric pressure is? It'd be like one bar. Bar. So it'd be one bar, which is a thousand something or other, right? I don't know what it is in psi, but it, yeah. Oh no, no, no. One bar is like fourteen psi or something like that. Oh, that's right. That's uh, stoichiometric. No, I'm no. thinking of eight atmospheres. One atmosphere. Yes, yeah, sure. Right. Okay. So uh, yeah, stoichiometric is not even close to that. Sorry. Um, so that, if it knows it's in a general area, okay. But a lot of bikes we would have to diagnose at a high level. Um, so Denver was a was a problem. There would always be little weird things that would happen to bikes in Denver because, frankly, the engineers didn't always do the best job of doing high elevation testing uh, in Italy. So we would end up beta testing in, in Denver, of course. So well, I'm trying to think how high the Dolomites are compared to Denver. Denver's a mile high. Denver's a mile high, but a lot of the people that are in the area, uh, frankly, there's a lot of, as it turns out, wealthy people that live in Aspen. So they would go up Independence Pass, which is 12,000 feet. And I don't, it's just not that common in the, in Euro. I'm sure they do, but whatever it is, they, they weren't doing a lot of testing up there. I'll say that. Right. Well, so I'm trying to think like, I'm trying to think what the maximum peak at the Dolomites is. That would be the, that would be the proving ground for someone like Ducati would be, would be that. Yeah. Range. Get up there and run it. Sure. But then they wouldn't get it up there and run it after 13,000 kilometers of freaking Starbucks back and um, forth. So I'll tell you that. Google's telling me the highest point's 11,000 feet. Yeah, so it oh, should be yeah. about the same, yeah. right? Yeah. Whatever it is, we would encounter some very strange issues with bikes at at five thousand feet, right? Even just the, the people that were in the in the front range, um, and that's something that most that sensor should generally kind of know, and that's fine, right? But there was a couple of bikes I can't remember which bikes it was like bikes in the two thousands that once you got up to a certain elevation, it wasn't recognizing how high it was and would just not work and you'd end up running either hideously rich or lean and it was a pain in the butt so um that really but that doesn't really correlate the the what what he was asking as far as the o2 sensor the o2 sensor is just going to sense within a range and if it goes too far out of either range it might trigger the um the engine check light maybe depends on the uh, algorithm it depends on the the strategy of that fuel injection system and it depends on the brand right so um that they're trying to to solidify that more the euro 4 standard will make it a little bit better 
for all manufacturers to have the same levels. And I think they're trying to standardize it to where, okay, that O2 sensor is going to rate this voltage to this voltage, which means this fuel to this fuel. And, you, you know, if it's going wrong, it's going to be this code and that's that. But I don't know if that's happening right now or not. Uh, but that's the story on EGR stuff. I mean, it doesn't, it's not changing it enough to, to make, a, make it of note for, for uh, the O2 sensor. Okay. I think we I think we could cover that one. Right. So thank you, Mike <laughs> from Rizoma for for doing that. Yeah, yeah. Thank thank you, Mike, a, a great deal. Cause he, hey, does uh, Rizoma make block off plates for EGR? Maybe I should have <laughs> right? Or for, for air air injection. No. You might want to plug no. that, right? Yeah. Oh, get it, plug it. Get it? Get it? Get it? Get it. Get it. Oh, You're oh. a fun guy. You know, Rizoma, do they make kickstands? Uh, they might not anymore. If they I, did, they they should. Because we could put them up. You know the best part about the that MP3 Studer? Yeah, no, no kickstand. No kickstand. I hit it. You could hit a button and it would lock the 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 yeah. two wheel center yeah. thing, sure. and you could just sit at a traffic light. You know, just put your feet up on the on the bars. It would just hold you upright. Huh? People look at you really weird, and then you just go, you wave, and you hit the throttle, and it once you go like a mile an hour, it, it unlocks it again. Huh? So it's pretty cool. But it's neat that it could it would do that. You would actually could roll open the throttle. It wasn't uh, like an e-brake lock. It was just the well, it the, had an e-brake too. You had a parking brake. Yeah, but it but were they separate? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that yeah, yeah. The, that lock is that's cool that you could just do that and then go and then it would and go right. Yeah. yeah. Neat. Yeah. No kickstand. No, no kickstand kick put up. E-brake up. Hmm. Yeah. You you probably. It's useless to you. There's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing for you there. That, right. All right. Well, good. Good talk. See you out there. Later. What is that? The raspberry. I don't remember. It. Only one man would jam me with raspberry jam. Lone Star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I could quote that movie all day. We but should watch that. I haven't watched should. that since That's the early '90s. Fucking quality space balls. Don't 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 don't. You ready to do this?